The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Uh, verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. I, uh, some, something came into my mind as far as the current administration that I just can't help it. I mean, everything they're doing up there, it's just one day of wickedness followed by another day of more wickedness. Okay, we are in Joshua 5. Uh, we're going to finish the chapter today. If you didn't see last week's sermon, you may not understand everything that's going on, but I do explain the typology. Uh, but this is verses 10 through 15. It's entitled, The Reproach of Egypt, Part 2. So, verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This sermon is a tad longer than we have had of late. If I make this introduction very long, as it is the last thing that I type each week, it will be even longer, so I will keep it short. But the importance of what is said and seen in these early Joshua sermons is beyond most people's imagination. There are many important doctrines that are either expressly seen here in the typology or that are clearly implied. For example, the heresy of reinserting the law of Moses or living by the law of Moses as a means of being found acceptable to God is explicit. The doctrine of hyperdispensationalism, meaning the teaching that there are two gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles, is clearly refuted. There is one gospel even if the term kingdom points to different things at different times. God's promises to Israel, the nation, do not mean that there are two gospels. It means that he will keep his word to them as a nation. Whether it will be a mid or post-trib rapture is revealed in the Old Testament typology as well. And when Jesus speaks in Matthew 23 and 24, the passage today especially shows that it is something being spoken to the people of Israel. That couldn't be any clearer. Our text first comes from John 8. It is verses 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
The problem with the heresies or faulty points of doctrine that I mentioned above stems from a lack of study and understanding of anyone? No, not necessarily the New Testament, but the Old. Unless one knows the Old as well as the New, many of the points of doctrine in the New either cannot be fully appreciated or they can be easily manipulated to say something that is not intended. Replacement theology, meaning the church has replaced Israel, would not exist if people could understand the typology being given in the Old Testament, especially from Numbers 14 until now. Ecclesiastes says, that which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. It doesn't say this simply because the sun rises every day. Rather, it says this because he has orchestrated his word to show us what is coming by what he has already done. Pay attention to the past. In it, you will find the future. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is on the 14th day of the month. That's verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal, Vayachanu b'nei Yisrael ba-Gilgal, and camped sons Israel in the Gilgal. This has already been noted in chapter 4, where it said, now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. As noted then, Gilgal comes from the word Gilgal, meaning a wheel. It means thus a circle, a wheel, or figuratively liberty, as in a rolling away. With the rite of circumcision found in verse 5-9, which was in last week's sermon, with that complete, the reproach of Egypt was rolled away from the people. With that noted, it next says, verse 10 continues, and kept the Passover. And made the Passover. This is something those who were not circumcised could not have participated in during the wilderness wanderings. This is explicitly stated in Exodus 12, verses 47 through 49. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let them come near and keep it and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. It can be speculated on all day long whether the older generation observed it or not, such as Moses and Joshua and Caleb. But this is not the point of what is being conveyed. We are being shown clear and specific typology to be considered. The people were uncircumcised, and they could not have observed the Passover. As such, this is only the third recorded Passover that Israel has observed. The first was at the time of the Exodus. The second was at Sinai, just prior to leaving on the journey to Canaan. And this is now upon entrance into Canaan. And because of this, the first is reflective of the Exodus and delivery from bondage in becoming the Lord's people. The second is reflective of life under the law and in anticipation of entering the promise. This third is reflective of the isodus, meaning the entry into the promise. It is a snapshot of Israel's history that has not yet been fulfilled. For now, they have been circumcised and the note of observance is given directly after that was accomplished. It was, verse 10 continues, on the 14th day of the month. Ba'ar ba'ah asar yom lachodesh in 410 day to the month. This was explicitly stated in Exodus 12, verse 18. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. However, the question to now ask is, the 14th day of which month? The reason this is relevant is twofold. First, if they were circumcised on a day after the 10th day of the first month, as they were, which is when they crossed the Jordan, and as would initially be thought correct based on a general reading of the passage, it would mean the men were still in the pain of having been circumcised. It said in verse 8 last week that the men had stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. 
If this is the first month, the account is exactly 40 years to the day after having observed the first Passover as recorded in Exodus 12. However, since we saw in Joshua 5.8 that they remained in the camp, it doesn't make sense that this would be in the first month. But there is a second reason that will soon be seen for why it is not the first month. Either way, the Passover is when the moon is full. It is when the Lord, meaning the antitype, was crucified, as is recorded in the New Testament in fulfillment of the type. It was, verse 10 continues, at twilight, ba'erev, in the evening. Just as commanded in the original observance, and as was to be observed henceforth, so they observed it in the Gilgal. Verse 10 continues, on the plains of Jericho, be'arvot yericho, in plains Jericho. It has been noted the word arava or plains comes from arav meaning evening. This is identical to the word arav meaning to take on pledge, to give in pledge, exchange, become surety, and so on. As such, for the given typology, one should think of the pledges of Jericho, where Jericho means place of fragrance. Of this, Albert Barnes, not in any manner connecting the events to the typology being presented, still wisely says the following. The revival of the two great ordinances, circumcision and the Passover, after so long an intermission, could not but awaken the zeal and invigorate the faith and fortitude of the people, both as seals and as a means of grace and God's good purpose toward them then, the general circumcision of the people, followed by the solemn celebration of the Passover, the one, here it is, formally restoring the covenant and reconciling them nationally to God. The other, ratifying and confirming all that circumcision intended, were at this juncture most opportune. What has everything since Numbers 14 been anticipating? Without even knowing the connection and the fulfillment of the typology, Barnes's words accurately reflect what is happening. With the observance of the Passover, it next notes, verse 11, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. And they ate from produce the land from Morrow, the Passover. Here is a word found only now and in the next verse, avur. It is translated as produce. It is from avar, to pass over or to pass through, the word that has constantly been seen concerning the acts of crossing through the Jordan. Some translations indicate that the produce mentioned here is old provisions that were carried over with them. So they're saying it means to pass over or through with them. Hence, to them, this conveys the idea of passing over. But this is incorrect, as is seen in the next verse, where it specifically ties this produce to the produce of Canaan. Therefore, it is not that the food passed with them across the Jordan. Rather, it is food waiting for them as they pass through. They are not eating old things, but new. It is, verse 11 continues, unleavened bread and parched grain. Matzot vekalui, unleavened bread and roasted. The matzot, or unleavened bread, is bread without yeast. The word kala, or grain, that is roasted, comes from kala, meaning to lightly esteem, or to be despised, or something like that. This is because the grain is shriveled, and it appears as such. This was eaten, verse 11 continues, on the very same day. Be'etzem hayom hazeh, in bone, the day, the this. The meaning is, on the exact same day, the 15th of the month, and none other. To say in bone is to say identical, as in Adam's proclamation that Eve was bone of my bones. This is the 15th, not the 16th day of the month, as many commentators claim. Nor can this day of eating be considered a violation of the Feast of Firstfruits, which occurred on the day after the Sabbath, because these are not crops planted by Israel and intended for the harvest. Go back to Exodus 23:16 to see that. Rather, the people are eating of what has grown of itself or what was planted by others. It is an acknowledgment that they have been circumcised, observed the Passover, and have entered into new life. With this occurring, verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. 
וישפוט המן ממחורת באכלם מעבור הארץ. And rested the manna from morrow in their eating from produce the land. It is the 16th of the month. The people now eating of the produce of Canaan is the fulfillment of the word given by the Lord to sustain Israel all the way back in Exodus 16. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. As I noted earlier, this is surely the second month, not the first. Not one commentator that I know of made the proper connection to what is being conveyed. The first reason is that the people had to heal from being circumcised. But more specifically, Exodus 16, where the manna was originally given, also says this, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And then going down to verses 6 and 7, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening, which is the new day, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. And then going down to verses 13 and 14, So it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there... On the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. The manna came on the 16th day of the second month. For Exodus 16.35 to be accurate concerning 40 years, and it certainly is, the accountant Joshua that is now occurring is on the 16th day of the month, the second month. It is something which a provision had already been made for. Years ago, I was talking to somebody and I said, the law is fulfilled in Christ. We all know this. But there are aspects of the law that are waiting to be fulfilled in the people of Israel. And I said, this is the only feast of the Lord that you could call a feast of the Lord that fits this in any way, shape, or form. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. On the 14th day of the second month, at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man who is clean and is, who is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. As for the word translated as ceased, it is Shabbat, to cease, desist, or rest. It was first used in Genesis 2 saying, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested, vayishpot, on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested, Shabbat, from all his work which God had created and made. As for the account now, the giving of the manna was rested exactly 40 years to the day after it had first been given. Exactly. Verse 12 continues, And the children of Israel no longer had manna. Velo haya od livnei Yisrael man. And no had again two sons Israel manna. 40 years after the initial giving of the manna to the day, the manna rested and did not come again. Verse 12 continues, But they ate of the food of the land of Canaan that year. And ate from the yield land Canaan in the year the it. Instead of manna, the people ate from the tevuah, or yield of the ground of Canaan. Canaan is derived from kana, meaning to humble or to subdue. That comes from a root signifying to bend the knee. Thus, it signifies something like humiliated or humbled or even subdued. Let us keep the Passover. We are no longer defiled. We have come to the one who purifies us. We were objects of his wrath, but upon us, he is now smiled. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is Jesus. We missed him on the first time around. And at the time of Passover, we were defiled. 
Upon us, his wrath grew hot. It did abound. But finally, upon us, he has smiled. We are circumcised, not just in the flesh, but in the heart. We have come through his death into life. Today, we have made a glorious new start. For to us has come reconciliation after the many years of strife. Our second thought today, the commander of the Lord's army. It's verses 13 through 15. Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Vehi biyot Yehoshua birecho. And it came to pass in being Joshua in Jericho. The wording is specific. It says in Jericho. The same phrase is used four more times, and it refers to being in Jericho, as in a border going through there, or people residing there. And because of this, there is no reason to assume that this now is chronological. Rather, it seems that this actually belongs chronologically in the contents of the next chapter, but it is being presented now for typological fulfillment. There in Jericho, it says, verse 13 continues, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and lifted his eyes and saw. It is the exact same expression, word for word, seen in Genesis 18, verse 2, when Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the Lord, Jehovah, meaning the Lord Jesus, with two others. There in Jericho, the place of fragrance, Joshua's attention is now raptly fixed on what he sees. Verse 13 continues, And behold, a man stood opposite him, Vehine. Ish omed lenegdo, and behold, man standing to opposite him. This is a human male that is standing right in front of him, just like in Genesis 18, where the Lord physically appeared to Abraham. The text can mean nothing else. Verse 13 continues with his sword drawn in his hand. Veharvo shalufa beado, and sword drawn in his hand. It is the exact same expression, word for word, seen in Numbers 22, 23, and 31, where the Lord, Jehovah, meaning Jesus, stood with his sword drawn in his hand when opposing Balaam on his donkey. The connection to Genesis and Numbers is leaving us no doubt about the identity of this man. As an important side note, the word cherev, sword, is identical to Horeb, or the mountain where the law was given. Certainly, a picture is being made for us to see. Verse 13 continues, And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And went Joshua unto him and said to him, Are to us you if to our adversaries? Joshua has no idea who this man is. And so he is asking whether he is one of his men or one of the adversaries. Everything about the word appears to mean that this is occurring in Jericho at some point during the time of the battle. Verse 14, so he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And said, no, for I principle, prince with the principle, principle, host Jehovah, now have come. The word sar signifies the head, the chief, the principle, figure, and so on. It signifies the one in charge. The host of the Lord does not simply mean Israel, but all of the powers that are arrayed under him. This would include humans, angels, even the sun, moon, planets, stars, elements, and so on. Everything at the disposal of the Lord is considered as his host. This man is in the position of all power and authority over all creation. As such, verse 14 continues, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And fell Joshua unto his face, earth, and worshipped. The word translated as worshipped can simply mean to bow down, but he's already fallen on his face. Hence, it means nothing other than the act of worshipping. This is more so because of who the man is claimed to be. If Joshua did not believe him, an entirely different reaction would have taken place. He would have either said, get behind me, you are in my army, or you're about to die, buddy. That didn't happen. The context itself clearly indicates that this is a man, and this man is God. 
because only God has all power and authority. Verse 14 continues and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Vayomer lo ma adoni medaber el avdo. And said to him, what my Lord from word unto his servant? Again, Joshua is the leader of Israel. Israel is the Lord's people. There is none greater than Joshua in all of Israel because of this. And yet, he subordinates himself to this man by calling him Lord and by saying he is his servant. The Lord has already spoken to Joshua seven times since chapter 1. Joshua is fully aware of who the Lord is, and he is fully aware of what the Ten Commandments say. The Lord alone is to be worshipped, and yet he is worshipping this man who is obviously, therefore, the Lord. Verse 15, then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Vayomer sart seva Yehovah el Yehoshua, and said, Principal, host Yehovah unto Joshua. While Joshua is in the act of worshipping the Lord with his face to the ground, the command is given. From the perspective of the Bible, it is another indication that this man is God. He is accepting worship while giving out a command to the leader of his people. And the command is, verse 15 continues, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. The words are emphatic. Remove your sandal from upon your foot, for the place where you stand upon holy it. With only a few changes, it is the exact same words spoken to Moses at the burning bush. Here are the changes for you to know. Remove your sandals from upon your feet for the place where you stand upon ground holy it. And then in Joshua, remove your sandal from upon your foot for the place where you stand upon holy it. Other than these differences, the only other major difference, and I know this because I put them side by side and counted the letters, the only other major difference is that there is an additional letter, a vav, in the word stand in Exodus 3 that is missing in Joshua 5. In this command, and it is a command, the man is instructing Joshua from one who is greater to one who is lesser. In essence, resign yourself to me. He is the possessor of and an authority over the place. Joshua's sandals, whether made by him or by someone else, were the work of man's hands. His footprints were created by God, implying God's mastery over him. There is then a uniting of the created foot with the dust from which it was created. Nothing of human origin would be considered acceptable in the presence of such a place of holiness. This was seen in Exodus 20, which says, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you used your tool on it, you have profaned it. God made the stones, not man. If man's efforts are placed along with God's holiness, only defilement will occur. God calls, God sanctifies, and God glorifies. The process of holiness is of and by God and God alone. And yet, this is a man who is obviously God. Because of this, and because of the command, it says, verse 15 finishes with, and Joshua did so. In compliance to the directive, and just as his predecessor Moses surely had done, Joshua removed his sandals. It is with this note that the chapter ends. The sword of the Lord is drawn in victory. Great things for us he has done. His hand is held high for all to see, and in it is the sword by which the battle was won. He is the one who came for the battle to win, a challenge to undo the failings of our first father. He was called to live a life without sin, and in his victory, no more will the devil man bother. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great and mighty things he has done. With shouts of joy, our voices are raised. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord, God's own Son. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. Joshua 5 started with a note about the inhabitants on the west side of the Jordan being in fear and their hearts melting. It is perfectly obvious that since Numbers 14, the record has been of Israel being under punishment for rejecting the Lord and failing to enter the promise. Everything since then has been in anticipation of them eventually being brought into Canaan. 
At the same time, that has been a parallel to Israel having rejected their Messiah. If you don't know that, if you didn't see the Numbers 14 sermon, go back and watch it. It is clearly anticipating Israel's rejection of Jesus. Every word of it. They went into exile and punishment according to the law of Moses. So everything from Numbers 14 until the time they're standing on the shore of the Jordan is reflective of Israel's time of having rejected Jesus and now they're ready to accept Jesus. Joshua 3 and 4 typologically anticipated the time when they will finally accept Jesus and enter into the promise. If you haven't seen those sermons, shame on you, go back and watch them. With Moses, the law, dead, they finally could enter into God's grace by following Jesus' fulfillment of it. Christ went first, and Israel would join him in his victory someday. Hence, the plural we was used in verse 5-1. In verse 2, Joshua was told to make swords, rocks, that means swords out of rocks, and to circumcise the sons of Israel who had not been circumcised. This is a clear reference to the state of Israel during their time of exile after having rejected Jesus Christ. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 2. Despite being circumcised in the flesh, Israel has been in a state of uncircumcision since their rejection of Jesus. Romans 2.25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. See also Jeremiah 9.25 and 26. That'll be your reading today. The Jewish people today are uncircumcised. Joshua, picturing Jesus, is told to make the instruments of circumcision and to circumcise the people. It was all in the singular. He was to do it. In Israel's having crossed the Jordan, it anticipates Christ's circumcision of the nation by himself. This is exactingly reflected in the words of Paul concerning those at Colossae. Here it is, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, he's speaking to Gentiles, but it's the same circumcision. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, being buried with him in baptism, all pictured in the Joshua 3 and 4 sermons in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, all pictured in Joshua 3 and 4. And now we're seeing more of that typology. Only Christ can truly circumcise according to God's standard of which the physical rite of circumcision only anticipated, meaning the cutting of the sin nature in man. But notice how Paul tied this circumcision in with baptism. It is the baptism that was typologically seen in Israel crossing the Jordan in chapter 3. In other words, and to understand what is going on, we have been seeing the process of salvation in individual passages, but they all happen at one time. Just so you know, everything we've seen, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through, this is all one instance of salvation, but God has taken these individual stories and he is showing us that process, okay? So, Moses, the law dies. Israel accepts Christ's fulfillment of the law. Israel enters the Jordan. Christ. Israel's baptized into Christ's death. That's chapter 3. Israel, signified by the stones carried to Gilgal, and which are then rested there, enters its rest. Hebrews 4, 3, but it was seen in chapter 4. Two sets of stones are set up, signifying the heavenly government of Jews and Gentiles. That's in chapter 4. Israel is circumcised. Israel has put off the body of sins of the flesh. The reproach of the past is taken away when believers are circumcised by the Lord, all seen in chapter 5. Believers partake of Christ as their Passover. Chapter 5. The Lord is the leader of the people, and they are brought into holy ground. Chapter 5. These and all other events happen at the exact same moment. But we have seen the individual applications spread out over five chapters so far. All of this will happen to Israel someday, just as it happens to every believer now who comes to Christ. You can see the heresy of hyperdispensationalism right in this, because hyperdispensationalism says that there's one gospel to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. It's exactly the same gospel, it's the same process, but national Israel has to come as well as individual Israel because God promised it to them. The circumcision is performed with swords, rocks. The symbolism is the law, the sword, cherev, the law, horeb, uh, and the Lord who is the rock 
The same word sur is used to describe him in Exodus 17 verse 6 when the water came from the rock. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, citing that example that Christ is the rock. Just so you don't miss this, in case you didn't understand what I was saying, the sword is the law. The law is in the word. That's why he's holding up the sword. Christ is exalting the law. He is the embodiment of it. I hope you got the typology. In other words, from 1 Corinthians 10, the circumcision is Christ's fulfillment of the law being imputed to the people and becoming their circumcision. The interesting addition in the Greek translation of Joshua 24:30, which we cited when we were looking at Joshua 5:2 last week, and which noted that these knives were buried in the tomb of Joshua, if original, gives its own marvelous picture of Christ's tomb being the very place where all of this is made possible. Verse 2 finished with the note of the second being circumcised. It is referring to the second generation who did not die in the wilderness. In other words, it anticipates the generation that follows the disobedient generation noted by Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 24. Here's what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It refers to the second generation of the wilderness wanderings, the people that are coming in to Christ. The generation Jesus is referring to is the same generation of Israel today. This is why he can speak of them even 2,000 years later, meaning those who will enter the tribulation period of which Matthew 24 is describing as this generation. They are the first disobedient generation. The second generation has yet to call on Christ, but they will do so. As he said to them in the previous chapter of Matthew, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you, the house of Israel, shall see me no more till you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is up to Israel's national acceptance of Jesus for him to return to planet Earth. In the meantime, we're going to be taken up at the rapture. Anybody that denies that doesn't understand the typology. In verse 3, it expressly stated that Joshua, he, singular, Joshua, circumcised the sons of Israel. We talked about how much of a task that would have been. If it was according to the current rite of circumcision, 10 minutes, it would have taken over 10 years without him taking any break to do it, okay? If he did one in a minute, it would have taken him over an entire year to circumcise those people, the number of people, and that was a low estimate, okay? Obviously, it's typology that's being seen. Joshua said in the singular, but all the people did, but we need to keep the typology, and so it says he, singular, circumcised the sons of Israel. That is why only Joshua is mentioned, even though it would be impossible for him to do it alone. It is Jesus alone who does this. It is deliberately stated this way, anticipating Christ's work in granting them the seal of righteousness. Paul writes of this in Romans 4. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Israel today cannot see what is exactingly being shown right in their own writings. They are uncircumcised, and in their sinful state, they have completely missed what scripture is telling them. Verse 3 next continued with the hill of the foreskins, meaning the hill of the uncircumcised. It is again telling us that Israel is in a state of uncircumcision at this time, but someday they will join the saints of Christ and the hill of the uncircumcised will become a reality. They will put off the body of sins of the flesh in coming to their Messiah, Jesus, in whom the line of sin in man is cut. That is what is pictured in the rite of physical circumcision and is fulfilled in Christ. I'll stop right there because some people don't know this. I've said it in many, many sermons, but just for those that don't know this. Abraham was given the rite of circumcision and it was called a sign. 
a sign is not a thing in and of itself. The word ot means that it anticipates something else. I'm giving you this sign, which will be fulfilled in some other way. The rite was in the male organ. I may repeat this in the sermon, and if I do, I apologize. I just don't want anybody to miss this point, is that the male organ is cut. It is through the man that sin transfers to the child, from father to child, male or female. Everybody inherits Adam's sin. Paul explains this in the book of Romans. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sign. In him, the sin is cut because he was born without a human father. His father is God, and therefore no sin transferred to him. That's the picture that we're seeing in the circumcision. Verse 4 specifically showed that Israel was circumcised under Moses in anticipation of Christ. But those who rejected Christ, either before his coming or after his arrival, were destined to die apart from God's mercy. The circumcision of the next generation is given to correct that based on their faith in coming to Christ as is seen in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, which I just cited. This is why the words zakar, male, coming from zakar to remember, and then enosh, male, coming from anash, signifying a mortal, are used. It was to show the state of those who die apart from Christ and those who are remembered by Christ. It is also why the term coming out from Egypt is used. We talked about that last week. Until Israel enters Canaan, which anticipates Israel finally coming to Christ, they are always coming out of Egypt, meaning that which pictures sin. They are in the bondage to the law by which is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. The Mosaic Covenant has total hold over them until they enter into the new covenant where no sin is imputed. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Verse 5 reconfirmed this. It was anticipated in what was said in Numbers 32, 13. And it will be fulfilled when Israel finally calls out to Jesus. Here you go. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. Verse 6 continued to show this, speaking of the generation walking 40 years in the wilderness. 40, as we have seen, is the number indicating a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. It is the product of 5 and 8 and points to the action of grace. 5, leading to and ending in revival and renewal. That's E.W. Bollinger. This is exactly what is anticipated in Israel's final restoration. Until all the comers out of Egypt, verse 5, are no longer coming out, meaning they have come to Christ, the picture will not be realized. They are a nation just like any other Gentile people reflected in the term ha-goy, or the nation, as it says, because they did not obey, meaning hear the voice of the Lord. We talked about that last week. The words could not more perfectly reflect Israel. They failed to believe, they did not heed his voice, and they were punished. As such, they were denied entry into the promise, exactly as the author of Hebrews states, and as we saw in last week's sermon, they did not enter the land of milk and honey that Jesus has offered to them. Verse 7 repeated the note concerning the uncircumcised generation, and that Joshua alone had personally circumcised the second generation. At that time, I noted three things that the circumcision meant. One, this is a witness to the Lord's acceptance of the people as being in a right covenant relationship. The sign of circumcision testifies to it. As such, the guilt of the fathers would no longer be laid upon them. Two, they would now be acceptable to observe the Passover, which they have done. Three, with the sign of the covenant upon them, they would now be granted that which was promised to the fathers. This all lies ahead for Israel but it is being pictured in Joshua for them to finally see someday. Maybe they will read or watch a superior word sermon someday and they'll realize it. I don't know. Verse 8 noted that all the people were circumcised. And the reason why I say that is kind of comical, but I have never seen any of this typology explained ever by anybody. And yet it's as clear as it can be. If you start with Genesis and go one section at a time, the typology becomes clear all the way through. Verse 8 noted that all the people were circumcised. It speaks of the time of national salvation. The pun of the words of verses 7 and 8 was noted at that time. And their sons he raised up in their place. Tachtam. It now says of those sons, and they sat. Raised up, sat. 
in their place, tachtam, in the camp. Verse 9 referred to the reproach of Egypt having been rolled away. The people had rejected the Lord and wanted to go back to Egypt in Numbers 14. The people rejected the grace of God in Christ and determined to stay under the law and living in sin. Only in coming to Christ is the reproach of Egypt rolled away. With the crossing of the Jordan, meaning being baptized into Christ, and with the fulfillment of the sign of circumcision, which is a result of that baptism, they will someday be restored to the divine favor of the Lord Jehovah. With that noted last week, the final words of verse 9 gave the names Gilgal, or liberty. The people will enter into liberty after the years of bondage to the law. That's found in John 8. It's found in Acts 15. It's found in Romans 8, Galatians 4. And I give all the verses if you want to look at the notes, Hebrews 2, and so on. It's again and again and again reflected in the New Testament. Starting with the verse today, it again noted the Israelites were in Gilgal, or liberty, where they kept the Passover. It is an obvious reference to Christ's death and their acceptance of that. 1 Corinthians 5, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The purging out of the old leaven is not speaking of the Passover, but of what follows it, meaning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Christ died to make us sinless. Thus, believers are to purge the sin from their lives. In observing the Passover, it signifies commemorating Christ's death, the fulfillment of what the Passover from Egypt only anticipated. It was in the evening, Erev, and in the plains, the Aravah of Jericho. Both words are connected to Arav, which speaks of a pledge. It is thus hinting to us of the Erevon, found in Genesis 38, and which anticipates the Arabon, the Greek word noted three times by Paul, all referring to the pledge of the Spirit, such as 2 Corinthians 1.21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a Arabon, a guarantee, a pledge. As verse 10 refers to the plains of the Jordan, the place of fragrance, it means the guarantee of a return to Eden and restored fellowship with God. As Albert Barnes correctly noted concerning the circumcision and Passover observance, without ever making the connection to Christ, he said, the one formerly restoring the covenant and reconciling them nationally to God. That's exactly what Jesus said when he spoke to Israel about the future. The other ratifying and confirming all that circumcision intended, which is Christ, all picture in Christ, were at this juncture most opportune. This is exactly what is being pictured. As I said earlier, all these things occur simultaneously in coming to Christ, but we are seeing them in individual bites to help us understand the magnitude of what God has done for us and of what he is still doing for Israel. As for the unusual word avor or produce found only in verses 11 and 12, that is from avar or to pass over or through, both are connected to the word Hebrew. In other words, the people are now true Hebrews who have crossed over in both person and substance, signified by the next words of verse 11, matzot vikhalui, or unleavened bread and parched grain. This is explained by Paul's words of 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The matzah is the unleavened bread Paul refers to, life without sin. The kalah is the state of man in Christ, reflected in the description of Moses in Hebrews 11. Here's what it said, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. The food they are now noted as eating reflects the state of new life that believers now and national Israel someday will participate in. Verse 12, along with Exodus 16:35, clearly showed that the Passover they observed was the second, not the first Passover. The law is fulfilled in Christ, but Israel missed it the first time. 
The second Passover was given for those who were unclean, meaning Israel, at the first Passover. In other words, though the law is fulfilled in Christ, its fulfillment for Israel lies yet ahead. This is exactly why the Lord gave a second Passover in the law. It was to provide for Israel who remains in their uncleanness to this day. The death of Christ clings to them. Remember it said, if you touch a dead body that you can't observe the Passover? That's what it's picturing. They're touching Christ, but not having accepted him. The death of Christ clings to them, and it must be purged away through faith in what he has done. It is exactly why the author of Hebrews says the following, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The law, which is obsolete, will only vanish away for Israel when they observe the second allowed Passover. Until that time, the manna, meaning God's supernatural preservation of Israel, will continue until they partake of the true bread from heaven, meaning Christ. This is the reason for his statement to the apostles on the night before he was crucified. Luke 22, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He was the first Passover. He will be Israel's second Passover. Israel will enter into God's rest, his Shabbat, that has been anticipated since creation week in Genesis chapter 1. The preservation of Israel until the millennium is absolutely guaranteed in the symbolism of the manna. When they eat of Christ, the need to supernaturally preserve them will no longer be needed. The goal will have been attained. After that, they will dine on the food of Canaan, as it said. The meaning is that they will eat in the land of the humbled, those who have bent the knee to Christ. With this picture now complete, the narrative turned to Joshua encountering the commander of the Lord's army. It is a picture of Israel's leadership and their long-awaited meeting with Christ. Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven, those who are taken at the rapture, are a portion of the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua meets him in Jericho, meaning in the place of fragrance. It is Israel's understanding that Christ is the Lord God. The same terms used in Joshua, and which point to Christ, were seen in Genesis with Abraham and Numbers with Balaam. It is clearly and unambiguously telling us that Jehovah is incarnate and that Jesus is Jehovah. The drawn sword, the Cherev, is the law, the Horev, of which Jesus is the embodiment, the Word of God. That is exactly explained in the citation from the book of Revelation. It is saying that Christ is the victorious one over the law. He is the embodiment and fulfillment of it. He is Jesus. When asked if he was for or against Israel, his response was, no. Charles Ellicott beautifully states why. The war is a divine enterprise in which human instruments are employed, but so as to be entirely subordinate to the divine will. Jehovah is not for Israel, nor for Israel's foes. He fights for his own right hand, and Israel is but a fragment of his army. Israel even to this day, thinks it is all about them. If you don't believe me, ask him and her. They're from Israel. Rather, it is all about Jesus. Israel is a small but a hugely important portion of what God is doing. Someday, the leadership of Israel, who speak for all of Israel, will realize who he is, and they will fall and worship before him, just as Joshua did. With that, verse 15 noted the Lord's command for Joshua to remove his sandals. I noted then the difference between his command to Moses and the one to Joshua. Remove your sandals from upon your feet for the place where you stand upon ground holy it. From Joshua, remove your sandal 
from upon your foot, for the place where you stand, upon holy it. Other than these differences, the only other major difference is that there is an additional letter, a vav, in the word stand in Exodus 3 that is missing in Joshua 5. Moses, the law was given for all people of Israel individually, your feet to accomplish. Joshua, Jesus, the law's fulfillment was given for all of Israel collectively, your foot to participate in. It's about Jesus. The addition of Vav is the sixth letter of the Aleph Bet and was given to indicate man, especially fallen man, under the law. The omission of the Vav in relation to Joshua indicates the fulfillment of the law to stand by Christ, the sinless God-man. This and the account with Moses at the bush are the only two times that this was commanded. When two similar things or two similar occurrences are noted in the Bible, there is a reason for it. There will be a contrast between the two, and yet they will confirm something. In the case of these two accounts, one is before Israel is delivered from bondage, one is after they have been safely led into the land of promise. He is the covenant-keeping Lord. One is outside of Canaan, one is in Canaan. The Lord is God over the whole earth, over both Jew and Gentile. In one, there is the Lord unseen and the voice of God from over there, meaning the bush. In the other, there is the Lord visible, tangible, and in human form. The Lord is the incarnate word of God. He is Jesus. In one, he is the Lord who will give the law, the angel or messenger of it. In the other, he is the Lord who defends the law which is given, the commander of the Lord's army. He is the Lord of the law, its herald and upholder. And more, the bush that burned with fire but was not consumed signifies the life of Israel under the law that was to be given. They would suffer affliction under it, but they would not be consumed. Likewise, Jesus suffered under it, but he was not consumed. On the other hand, the man with the sword drawn is the champion of the law. He is the victor over it. Israel has now entered into the promise following him in this state. In the end, we are seeing the amazing story of what God is doing in Christ, and he is confirming it through a particular group of people to absolutely prove to the world that it is so. He has, and he continues to work through Israel, confirming his covenant with them despite their unfaithfulness to him. We serve a great God because we serve Jesus. If you don't, uh, thank you. If you don't understand the typology of what is being seen, Israel is faithfully unfaithful to their Lord. It's always been that way. Well, guess what? God made a promise to them and he will never break that com promise. And it says in the book of Ephesians that when you call on Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You may be faithfully unfaithful to the Lord, but he will never break the covenant promise that he has made with you. Israel is a type. They're a template of you and me, faithfully unfaithful, even after being saved. Our thoughts are corrupt. Our deeds are wicked. The things we do that we secret away from the rest of the world are all known to God, and yet he continues to love us and save us. Not because of us, but because of who we are in Christ, his son. He will never reject you because of the goodness that he has bestowed upon us because of the glory of what he has done at the cross of Calvary. This is what we need to remember. All of this, all 10,000 points of information in here. I understand that if you were to read it for three weeks, you'd still find something new because there's a lot of points of theology in there are all summed up in one word, Jesus. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again to bring you unto the Father if you will simply believe that gospel message. I would ask that you would do that today to cherish him and to hold fast to him. And we're going to see the same thing. Man, next week we're going to Jericho. We're going to take over a city and the walls are going to fall and the people are going to be killed. And guess what we're going to see there? Jesus. In chapter 8, bad things happen with a guy named Achan, okay? And they're going to have trouble. Israel's going to have trouble because of one guy. But they're going to prevail in the end. Why? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our closing verse comes from Galatians 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Think of Gilgal. 
in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's speaking of the law of Moses. If you go to a church and they say you need to tithe, you need to either tell the pastor that's wrong or leave that church because he's reimposing a law that has already been fulfilled in Christ. The typology had nothing to do with you giving your money to a church. It had everything to do with the work of Jesus Christ being fulfilled. If you don't know that, go back and watch the Numbers sermons, the Leviticus sermons, and especially Deuteronomy 14. It's all there, very clearly explained. Jesus, don't let people push you back under the law. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He's talking about circumcision, which was required under the law of Moses. He uses that as a benchmark for the entire law of Moses. Why are we not to kill people? Because the New Testament epistles tell us don't kill people, right? And I'm talking about murder, not the word kill, which if you're an army officer and you go out and blow somebody up, that's your job. Completely different premise. The word murder. Go back and watch the number sermons and you'll understand the distinction between the two. It was very clear. We don't kill people because the New Testament murder people because the New Testament told us. But the law itself is done, including the Ten Commandments. You know, the same people, the same people that say, oh, we're obligated to the moral law, but not the civil law. haven't thought that through very well because what day are you sitting in church right now? Sunday. Sunday. And what is the Sabbath? Saturday. So, nine of the Ten Commandments we have to obey and not the tenth one? It doesn't work that way. We are given our instruction from the New Testament, and the law was given to help lead us to Christ. I'm not saying don't obey the Ten Commandments, but at the same time, I'm telling you that you are not obligated to the Ten Commandments, because if you are, you better go join the Seventh-day Adventists, okay? That is what the Bible teaches us, is that we have a higher responsibility now. It's to Christ who embodies the Ten Commandments, which are the the substance of the entire law of Moses. This is what we need to remember. Christ, 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 and live what the New Testament tells us. When it says don't steal in the New Testament, Paul is referring to the old, but he's saying this is something you have to do in the new as well. Don't steal, don't lie, don't do these things. But if somebody tries to push you under the law, tithing or no eating pork or any other precept from the law, you become a debtor to the entire law of Moses. Don't let anybody do that to you. I get my instruction from the New Testament. That's what you need to tell them. I'm a New Testament believer in Christ because the old is anticipating Christ. Good stuff. Next week is Joshua 6. It's 1 through 16. It's time for this city to go even until it's done. It's entitled The Battle of Jericho. Part 1. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) That'll be our 11th Joshua sermon, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I got a question for you, and I'll give you a ride on this YF-22, or I'll let you take this home and drive it around for the week, and you fill it up when you bring it back. Gas is way expensive under Biden. Okay, either way. In other words, I don't have anything I can actually give you today, so we're just playing. Sergio says, why don't you give that to him when you say that? I said, because I'm just playing, okay? I'm, I'm trying to stimulate them into wanting to answer this question. Okay, what? I, I, somebody might get into the loop. They might, but that's coming later. That's coming. Okay, if you know this, raise your hand because I'm, this is going to be several people are going to get it right away. Who was the king at the final fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple recorded in Jeremiah 52? The king's name. She didn't raise her hand, so I had to say, but yes, that was correct. I knew somebody would get it right away. This girl, you're going to have a tough time beating her in this. She knows her Bible exceptionally well, okay? That's correct. Zedekiah was the king of Israel. He was king. Do you remember how long he was king for? Eleven. Eleven years. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And do you remember what happened to him? Yeah, they took out his eyes and killed his children in front of him. Well, they killed his children in front of him and then took out his eyes. The last thing that guy ever saw, the what? No right for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last thing he saw was the death of his sons and then they put out his eyes. That's a bad memory to carry with you. And all for disobeying the Lord. The Reproach of Egypt, part two. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day, we know. 
of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, so it was this way, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the produce of the land after many a year. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of Canaan that year. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and behold, it appeared to be one of his contemporaries. A man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, I have now come but as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? What is your word? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, as now you know, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. All right. Did everybody get most of the typology? If you haven't seen the previous sermons, I understand it's a little difficult. But if you follow through from Joshua 1, you will see everything that's coming and unfolding as it does. And then it's going to suddenly and abruptly change at the end of Joshua 8. Oh, it's wonderful. Wow. I, you know, and I had no idea about the second Passover. All I knew is when I was evaluating these sermons, I said, something isn't right. And so I had to go back and reread almost all of Exodus to figure out that it's actually 40 years from the second month, not the first. Because I was saying to myself... It says elsewhere when, uh, what is it, uh, the brothers, Simeon and Levi, killed the entire town because they raped Dinah's brother. What does it say about on the, I think, the third or fourth, third day, they were still in pain? Mm -hmm. Well, they're just about to go into Jericho just a couple days later, and it didn't fit. So everything has to come in its proper order. It's a big, complicated book, I'll tell you that, but what a wonderful story of redemption. Okay, let's go to break. Um, no, not break. <laughs> Communion. Okay, there we go. Okay, a couple new people in here. Don't know. Sergio is an ordained minister. He uh, happened to be ordained at this little church in uh, Sarasota, Florida on Superior Avenue some years ago. And then he left us and went back to Israel, and now he has moved back to Sarasota, and uh, he, uh, he speaks Hebrew way better than I do. So I'm glad to give this, uh, this uh, honor to him every week. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then he can take over. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to revel in what you have done by fulfilling the law and taking away its yoke of bondage from us and giving us types and pictures to understand that we are never to put ourselves under it again, but to trust in Christ, to rest in Christ, and to be freed from that bondage in Christ. Help us to learn this law and to apply it to our lives all the days of our lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has done these things, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.